Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is episode four. It's elementary. In this episode, we shall discuss the first models of chemical transformation as philosophized by the ancient Greeks and Chinese. In our last episode, we talked about practical chemistry known and performed by ancient civilizations. But was there anything about the world we can learn from those procedures? Or is all merely arbitrary, random, or the whim of the gods? After the Greeks reconstructed their civilization following the Bronze Age collapse, using the new simplified alphabet borrowed from the Phoenicians, one of the topics their new philosophers turned to was the structure and nature of the universe. The term philosopher is Greek itself and means lover of wisdom. Rather than practical chemistry, these philosophers argued out the first chemical theories. As to why the Greeks, as opposed to some other civilization, perhaps it was because they lived not in a centralized bureaucratic empire where chemical knowledge was secret, but rather they lived in small city-states with many educated citizens who could read and write and discuss. Finally, we can begin to put names to particular philosophers and their hypotheses about the nature of matter. The first philosopher we know of who spoke of chemical theory was Thales, who lived in Ionia from about 624 BCE to 546 BCE. Thales lived in Miletos, a city on what is now the Turkish coast, and became famous when he predicted a solar eclipse on May 25, 583 BCE. If heavenly events, generally felt to be unknowable, could be predicted publicly and openly, Perhaps there is a natural order and law to the world, one which even the gods on Mount Olympus must follow. The Greeks promoted the idea of cause and effect. That is, events in the natural world have causes. One of Thales' philosophical questions was, what is the true nature of a material? For example, we can take malachite, blue copper ore, and turn it into reddish copper metal. What is the essential nature of the material? Is it copper? Is it rock? Is it red? Is it blue? Can you change something into something else? Are materials all different views or aspects of one underlying substance? Thales argued that yes, there is one basic material which gives simplicity and order to the universe, and that material is water. We don't know enough about Thales to say why he held this view, But a later philosopher, Aristotle, in his book Metaphysics, said, That from which is everything that exists and from which it first becomes and to which it is rendered at last, its substance remaining under it, but transforming in qualities, that they say is the element and the principle of things that are. For it is necessary that there be some nature, either one or more than one, from which become the other things of the object being saved." Thales, the founder of this type of philosophy, says that it is water. Notice here that Aristotle contemplates the original object is saved or retained, while its qualities are added or subtracted. Another later philosopher, Heraclitus Homerus, commented that Thales decided upon water as the basic material from seeing moist substance turn into air, slime, and earth. Let's unpack some of these terms and ideas. We probably should substitute a term slightly more familiar than underlying substance here. That is, we can use the more modern term element. 
The Latin word elementum was not used by the Greek philosophers, and is maybe related to the sequence of orders in the Roman alphabet, L M N, implying an extremely basic nature as simple as the order of letters. We are not talking about a modern definition of an element like iron or sulfur or helium. Instead, we are talking about essential qualities that objects have. That is, wetness or heat or yellowness. This is an important distinction because it removes actual objects from the discussion and substitutes ideal experiences that you might have upon interacting with that object. Keep this distinction in mind, for it will permeate chemical theories for a couple of thousand years. Let's also take note of a general lack of experimentation by the ancient Greeks, except for the most casual observation. In this case, Thales may have glanced upon mud with fog or steam lifting on a warm day, gradually drying out, and decided that water is the true element. Let's be honest here. It does seem like Thales pulled a fast one over us by claiming water as a basic substance with no obvious reason, and in fact, other philosophers disagreed with him. One whom we know of was Anaximenes, who also lived on Miletos, and whose life overlapped with Thales. Anaximenes argued, no, given that the Earth is suspended in air, the idea of a vacuum was rejected by the Greeks. Then air is the ultimate substance or element. But that was also disputed. Heraclitus, not the previous Heraclitus Homerus I mentioned, who lived a bit later, around 500 BCE, in the nearby city of Ephesus, said, no, it was fire. Fire has the essential quality of jumping, shifting, changing, leading to chemical change. Remember, I noted in an earlier episode the attraction of fire in chemical theories. Here is one example of many we shall encounter. The great science writer and science fiction writer Isaac Asimov notes that it is easy to smile at these early notions, but actually these Greek guesses were quite profound. Asimov says that suppose we substitute gas for air, liquid for water, and energy for fire. This sounds more modern, especially if we consider that fire is an agent for chemical change. But over two thousand years ago, we have no word for gas, no word energy, nor even the phrase chemical change. We have to make do with what we have. In any case, we have no good way of deciding which basic element is really the basic one. We step forward a few more years to the Greek philosopher Empedocles from Sicily. Rather than arguing indefinitely about which one element is truly basic, let's all hold hands, have a kumbaya moment, and state that all of them are basic elements. In fact, let's add the Earth as the basic one too, so we can be down to Earth. So now we have four basic elements: air, fire, earth, and water. Which brings us to Aristotle, who lived in fourth century BCE Greece, whom we quoted about Thales. Aristotle was a proponent of this four-element theory, and Aristotle's view dominated science and knowledge up until modern times. Because this four-element theory was so influential for many centuries, let's examine it in more detail. Aristotle's four-element theory regarded elements as ideal rather than real substances. The earth element in his scheme was not actual dirt dug out of the ground, but an idealized earth element. Dug-up soil was perhaps the closest actual material to this idealized element, but still not the true essence of Earth. Likewise, 
The water element was not real drinkable water, but an ideal perfect water. In addition, each element was a combination of opposite qualities or properties, which were dry and wet, hot and cold. So water was a combination of the qualities cold plus wet. Fire was a combination of hot plus dry. Earth was a combination of cold plus dry. And air was a combination of hot and wet. Finally, each idealized element had an internal nature. That is, Earth's nature was to fall to the ground, while fire's nature was to rise to the sky. But then, Aristotle noted, items in the sky were different. They were unchanging. Objects seemed to move around the Earth in perfect circles, so obviously the heavenly bodies were of a different element than mere ground-based elements. Therefore, Aristotle called this fifth element of the heavens the ether. The name ether is ancient Greek for upper air or sky, and is related to the word for glowing or shining. Heavenly bodies' main characteristic is that they appear to glow. In Latin, fifth element was called the quinta essentia, which evolved into the English word quintessence. In China, shortly after Aristotle, another chemical model describing five elements appeared, ascribed to Zhou Yan, a scholar in the coastal province of Shandong toward the end of the 3rd century BCE. For the Chinese, the five elements were earth, wood, fire, metal, and water. These five elements were associated with colors, specific metals, and places. So, earth is yellow, gold, and the center. Wood is azure, lead, and the east. Fire is red, copper, and the south. Metal is white, silver, and the west. Water is black, iron, and the north. Like the Greek opposing properties, the Chinese also had a principle of opposites, yin versus yang. Yin corresponds to female and the moon, while yang corresponds to male and the sun. So likewise, sensations are opposite, like cold and hot. Therefore, chemical change is explained through an imbalance and subsequent rebalancing of these opposing qualities in a material. If one can prepare special materials from these elements, the human body can be placed into harmony and perfection with the universe. The idea was to adjust the opposite principles of yin and yang for perfection and harmony. Typical materials used for this would be bright red cinnabar, gold, jade, which is green, and so on. Experimentation led to interesting chemical reactions, such as between saltpeter, lots of yin, plus sulfur, lots of yang, to make gunpowder, a Chinese invention. Back to the Greek elements. To describe the reaction of sulfur and arsenic, the Greek philosopher might say that the substance's qualities combined or canceled each other out. So the cold quality of sulfur added to the cold quality of arsenic, the dry quality of sulfur added to the dry quality of arsenic, and so on. The result is a series of qualities that correspond to a new material, realgar, or in modern terminology, arsenic sulfide. The old original reactants, sulfur and arsenic, actually disappeared to make a new material, realgar. The idea of arsenic sulfide as a combination of actual arsenic and sulfur is ridiculous in this four-element model, for there is neither arsenic nor sulfide in realgar. Obviously, just look at it. Realgar is an orange-red crystal. 
Arsenic is a shiny gray mineral. Sulfur is a bright yellow crystal. Neither reagent has much in common with the product, Realgar. The takeaway from this chemical theory is that substances have no internal structure or even a composition. In fact, the theory also says that all materials react with other materials in all proportions, and measuring out amounts of starting reagents is useless. Even further, we gain the idea that merely tinkering with the proportions of qualities will bring about the creation of a new substance. The idealized elements were secondary in importance, while the innate qualities were the prime factor in reactions. Take water. You can add fire to it and get steam. You can remove fire from it and get ice. Examples with this theory that common sense found reasonable abound. For example, take a newly cut stick from a tree, a stick that is still greenish. Burn it. The result is creation of fire, the flame you see, air, the smoke emitted, water, the sap that runs out, plus a bit of earth, the ash residue. Plus, if you know precisely the right proportions of the four qualities, you can make anything or transform one item into another item. The idea of transforming items or substances into other substances takes on prime importance when we talk about alchemy. The extension of the Greek love of the idea of cause and effect was Aristotle's analysis of causation. What is the purpose of a material? That is, what is its final cause? Why does that material have a particular shape, texture, or appearance? That is, its formal cause. What is the material made from? That is, its material cause. How does it show the properties it has? That is, its efficient cause. So, for a metal, its final cause is construction because it is used to build things. A metal's formal cause is its innate combination of essential qualities of hot, wet, cold, and dry. A metal's material cause was a particular combination of earth and water. A metal's efficient cause was growing for a long time inside the earth from a dry, smoke-like exhalation combined with a different wet, vaporous exhalation. Various minerals had their own characteristic amounts of smoky and vaporous exhalation. You can see now that the idea of a pure substance is meaningless in Aristotle's four-element theory, because substances are merely expressions of qualities. How could one test for pure cold or pure wetness? How could you analyze a material for its components? All real objects have various combinations of these ideal qualities anyway. Plus, there was little or no experimentation required to philosophize about matter other than casual observation that anyone could do with little or no training. The whole scheme was really about logical arguments. This four-element model was quite happily accepted using the empirical knowledge of the time and lasted until modern times when experiments began to show serious problems with it. Even so, not all philosophers agreed on this scheme, or at least some of its details, namely that of divisibility. Let's explore this question. For example, consider a rock. You can break up that rock in half, or into pebbles, or even into rock powder, and those grains are still rock. How small can you crush a rock? The first known philosopher to consider this question was Leucippus of the Turkish town Miletos in the 5th century BCE. His more famous disciple Democritus, 
who lived in Abdera on the northern Aegean Sea from about 470 to 380 BCE, stated that there was a final, ultimately small particle of stone that contained the quality of stoniness. That smallest particle, beyond which the stone cannot be divided, he called atomos, which is Greek for uncuttable. We now have the word as atom. Differences in shape and size of these uncuttable atoms cause differences in appearance, consistency, and reactivity in matter. Movement of those atoms were attributed to gods. The problem with this idea, and Greek philosophy in general, is that there was no way to confirm or deny the idea of atomism. And those philosophers who clung to Aristotle's four-element theory, which was most of them, couldn't square atomism with the ideas of ideal elements and qualities. So, Democritus's atomism never gained much traction. There were a few adherents, though, including Epicurus, whose Epicureanism was fairly popular during the Roman era. Among Epicurus's arguments for atomism was that we can divide objects into essentially nothing and lose them, so there must be a smallest particle of something. These atoms are too small to perceive, and the matter we see is just a large aggregation of tiny atoms. Atoms move in empty space at random or by free will, and chance induces them to clump together into all kinds of matter. That sounds awfully similar to modern chemistry in many ways. A famous Roman Epicurean whose writings survived to the modern era was Titus Lucretius Carus. His poem, De Rerum Natura, Latin for On the Nature of Things, was written around 55 BCE and preserved what we know of Democritus's atomic theory. It includes, surprisingly, traces of what would become the kinetic theory of gases in the 19th century and Galileo's experiments on gravity in the 17th century. But again, atomism and the idea of empty space seem to contradict the idea of detectable qualities and no observable vacuums, so philosophers largely ignored this scheme. For one, there seemed to be no way to describe freezing and boiling of materials. For two, religiously removing the idea of gods and moral law was just heretical, leaving atoms to chance. Another later philosopher, who had more influence for centuries after the fall of the Roman Empire, was Zeno of Citium, who lived from about 334 to about 262 BCE. He adapted Aristotle's four-element theory, but added that there was inert matter as opposed to living matter, that is, pneuma, or vital spirit. That is, the qualities hot and dry were more active than cold and wet. This implied that air and fire had significant amounts of pneuma, and perhaps even that pneuma somehow glued inert water and earth together. The idea of pneuma affected later medieval views of distillation and perhaps also the idea of a vital force at the dawn of modern chemistry. We see that both the Greeks and Chinese had competing chemical theories to explain the composition of materials and chemical reactions. Both theories involved basic elements and qualities that people perceive. For our purposes, the story of chemistry mostly continues with Aristotle's four-element theory, so we will concentrate on this theory and see how it led to the rise of Egyptian chemeia in our next episode. Until then, brave the elements! Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast.